Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. Episode 82, and this week, a doyen of wine writing. Margaret Rand, general editor of Hugh Johnson's hugely popular pocket wine book, joins me to talk about the latest edition and, of course, her own journey in wine and whiskey. Plus, later on, as always, your selections from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Doyen is not a word to be bandied about casually, but it's really the only way, I think, to describe Margaret Rand, a writer with decades of experience in the world of wine. Uh, she's probably written for almost every wine publication that exists in the English language, uh, maybe a slight exaggeration, but not much. Uh, she's the author of uh, Grapes and Wines, which I think was the first wine book I ever read, actually, and uh, 101 Wines to Try Before You Die. But she's also the general editor of Hugh Johnson's endearingly popular Pocket Wine Book, a role she's undertaken for 15 years, um, helped, of course, by a team of correspondents. Uh, the latest edition, the 46th, has just been released in time for Christmas because it's suitably sized for a stocking. And I'm delighted to say that Margaret uh, joins us now on The Drinking Hour. Welcome, Margaret. Good morning, David. Good morning. It's Lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you as well. Thank you very much uh, for your time, first of all. I spoke to uh, Hugh Johnson uh, back in uh, September. Believe it or not, the first time I'd actually uh, ever met him. Uh, he talked about um, a chance conversation uh, with the team at Mitchell Beasley, uh, which led to the creation of the Pocket Wine book. Uh, that was getting on for 50 years ago. It's still something I know of which he's immensely proud, but he has fully handed over the reins to you now, hasn't he? Yes, he has. It was an incredibly generous and typically generous thing for him to do. Because, you know, he didn't need to, but he just thought that he would. And now he's completely taken a back seat. He doesn't interfere. I mean, I quite often have a chat to him if I have a problem. You know, what do you think about this? Because we, our views tend to be aligned and it's useful to have a second opinion. But no, he's, taken, he's completely out of it now. So it's all my fault. <laughs> And he is one heck of a guy to ask for advice because he has so much knowledge, doesn't he? And has known everybody. He's known absolutely everybody um, all over the world. So his, he has a, a store of anecdotes that really would keep any room entertained. Yeah, and they kept uh, our podcast entertained uh, a couple of months back as well. It was a, a lovely addition. Um, you've been involved in the guide uh, for many years, haven't you? Yes, I mean, it's probably 15. I can't honestly remember. It just seems to have been more or less forever. Well, it's uh, an honour, really, because um, it's been a stellar success over the years. Um, it, it has this 
a legion of, of followers, doesn't it? Yes, it does. There are, well, I sincerely hope there are people who buy it every year. I know there are people who buy it every year. We do do a very thorough update every year. So it is, you know, it is new every year. We're not lazy about it at all. <laughs> we really put our backs into it. You can't possibly know everything about everywhere. Uh, it must be impossible. So how do you deal with that? Because it's very comprehensive. I've got a lot of contributors all over the world, 31 or something, I can't remember, but there are an awful lot of them. And they're in, they're mostly living in the countries they're writing about. One or two are based here, but mostly they're based abroad in the, in the countries in which they specialise. So they've got their feet on the ground and they know exactly what's going on. And without that, then you couldn't do it. One person simply cannot keep tabs on things to that extent. You know, when, when the book started, it was much, much smaller, much thinner, much more white space. Now, if there's a bit of white space, we think, oh, we can fill it. We can put some words in there. So we, it's crammed. It's really crammed. And there's no way of me making it less crammed, really, because every year the wine world expands. There are new producers, new wines, new things to go in. I find myself saying no an awful lot. It's very sad. <laughs> I can imagine. General Editor is a great title. Um, it kind of conjures up a military leader, perhaps a dictator. But uh, how do you go about um, how do you go about putting it all together? Because it's it, there is so much in there in in what is actually not a significantly enormous amount of space. We use a lot of abbreviations and we just compress everything madly. It's all done on a database, so you can check word counts very easily, and it helps a lot. But we compress everything. You'll see it's full of abbreviations. We, we, instead, we don't write out Bordeaux, we put BX. Um, we don't write out Burgundy, we put B-U-R-G. And you know, all these abbreviations, which sound like nothing on their own, but together they add up to an awful lot of safe space. I do worry sometimes that it makes it a bit hard to read. You know, that's, that's what the book is. It's very abbreviated and, and compact. Yes. I mean, I don't think it does make it hard to read because it's uh, I, I was uh, flicking through it at the weekend. And, and it is amazing how quickly you get used to all those abbreviations. And although at face value, when you first look, you think, oh, what's that one? I'll have to think about that very rapidly. And of course, there's an index where you can check anyway. But very quickly, you just get used to it, don't you? Well, I hope so. I mean, things like CHX for Chateau is pretty obvious. Cab so for Cabernet Sauvignon is pretty obvious. We, we try not to make them too obscure. <laughs> yeah, and I think you do a, a good job. In the introduction, you say uh, that uh, wine does not taste the way it used to. And you're not necessarily saying it's, it's better or worse. You're not making uh, a, a judgment call there. But tell us what you mean. Well, you referred earlier to my many decades of writing about wine. Um, actually, 40 years this year, I should be having a party. Will you come if I have a party? I hope you will. I will most certainly come, yes. Oh, good. Wine then was it was just the beginning of new world wines coming on the scene. And ripeness was the great target. And, you know, Australian Chardonnay arrived and it tasted of fruit. And we thought this was the most marvellous thing. And that changed wine. Wine changed dramatically in the 80s. And then it began to get, reds began to get very extracted and very muscular and very tannic with the advent of the increasing popularity of Robert Parker and the style of reds that he liked, until that became a distortion, to, in my view, of what wine should be. And now that has gone out of fashion, because fashion is terribly important in, in, in wine. It, it rules styles. Now fashion has come back to fresher, lighter wines, 
Uh, ripeness is much easier now with 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 climate change. It's the, you know the good side of climate change, which one's not supposed to say. I'd probably get trolled for that. <laughs> um, of course, climate change is very dangerous. We know this, but an awful lot of the classic regions of the world have come into their comfort zone in the last few years, and some are on the edge of going out of it the other side. So it is going to be a problem. But we have ripeness now with the greatest of ease and the battle is for acidity. And that's the opposite of what it was like when I came into it. That's uh, astonishing, really. You have seen in 40 years the climate, as well as fashion, the climate changing wine. Yes. Mm. And of course, there were quite a lot of very cold years in the first half of the 20th century. It was not a a warm period at all. Um, And it was a struggle to get grapes ripe, even in the most propitious sites. Now, it's a struggle for acidity everywhere, really. And we're starting to see things like north-facing sites, which uh, would have been a no-no in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, uh, uh, suddenly becoming uh, talked about favourably, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. And sites that were too cold before. Sites in Germany and in the, the Mosul Valley, which were too cold to ripen wines, and they were just abandoned. And you went there a few years ago and they were just covered in weeds and brambles. They'd simply been abandoned. And now a lot of them are being brought back into cultivation because they they get that cool climate that everybody wants now. Another thing that has happened uh, in your 40 years has been a lot closer to home. I talked to Dermot Segru uh, back in the summer and he told a lovely story about Hugh Johnson and Tony Lathwaite having a chat with him. And then both saying that in their many years in the wine business, um, they never imagined that English wine uh, would be something that could be taken seriously. Is that, is that a sort of sentiment that you, you kind of feel as well, calling on your many years of experience? Yes, totally. I'm a huge fan now of English sparkling wine. I think it is the top wines are as good as any champagne you care to mention. They're made, of course, in much smaller quantities but they are really astonishingly good. And no, I would never have believed it because it used to be a rather small-scale, amateurish sort of industry when everybody thought that it was rather jolly to be making wine. And if they planted a few vines in their backfield, then that was all very great fun. And now, partly it's climate change that has made it possible to get these grapes a bit riper. Partly it's serious amounts of money going in Quite often, money made in the city or in tech companies being put into estates, and they, you know, they can afford to really do it well because sparkling wine needs a lot of it needs a long term investment because you've got to plant, then you've got to wait for the grapes for the vines to get old enough, and then you've got to wait for the for the, the wine in bottle to age. So you've got to have very deep pockets in the long term. And they have. And it shows. And the, what the results are fantastic. An exemplar of that uh, might be Exton Park, because you select uh, some of the most significant wines that you've tasted over the last year in the guide, which I very much enjoyed uh, reading. Uh, and one of them is uh, an Exton Park uh, reserve blend. I think it's the RB45 from memory. Can't find it in the book right now at this moment. But um uh, this is uh, made by Corin Seeley, who was a guest a few months ago on The Drinking Hour, led, as, as the name suggests, by Reserve Blends. You need a lot of money to do that kind of thing, don't you? Yes, because you've got to keep wines for a long time. 
and you've got to be able to afford to keep wines back from your annual crop and not sell them in order to have them there in reserve. And as I was talking about um, tech money and city money a moment ago, I realized, of course, Dermot is not, of course, in that bracket. He is um, a very small scale and has struggled and has got two tiny vineyards that he acquired, you know, by great determination. And he's probably the best winemaker in England. He's Irish, of course. That lovely blend they're doing now, moving away from vintage wines to get that beautiful balance and depth that you get putting reserve wines in. It's wonderful. Mm. And Dermot also has a, a, a real skill for uh, brute nature, um, so, so non-dosage, which is fiendishly difficult with English acidity, isn't it? It can be. It can taste really raw. Well, so can champagne, although that's, again, climate change has made the grapes riper. But if you don't have that that residual that dosage, rather, to to balance the acidity a bit, to round it out, you can get this terribly raw, bony, skeletal feel, which is a, a bit daunting. Sommeliers love them, but it's been a bit harder to convince most drinkers. But the, now the styles have got so much better and the base wines are so much riper that I don't think you would notice that it's Brut Zero, actually. And that's surely the, the skill of it. Yeah, absolutely. I've always felt that I, I loved the idea uh, rather more than the reality. But I think that is changing. We're getting these uh, stars where, as you say, you, you don't notice necessarily it's zero. And that, that's, that's wonderful. In your time editing the book, then, what sort of changes have you seen? So we're talking rather than a 40-year a window, we're now talking about a 15-year window. But 15 years is a, a long time in, 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 in the wine world. Uh, what sort of changes have you seen in the time that you've been putting this together? Oh, well, now, a greater and greater focus on producers rather than appellations, I think. I think people buy wine now by the name of the producer much more than the name of the appellation. You know, we used to list lots of, we used to try and list, I think, every appellation in the appellation world. And that was a lot of them. We're now beginning to weed out some of the ones that are not very significant because we need more producers in there. That's how people buy wine now. You don't need to know that it's AC, Cote or whatnot, but you do need, need to know that it's Monsieur by Monsieur Dupont who makes extremely good wine. And, of course, also natural wines, biodynamism and natural wines. That's been very important. And again, it was a swing of the pendulum. You've got natural wines beginning and they were very extreme and they were full of faults and they put a lot of people off because they were full of virtue, but full of faults and not always very nice. But they've become absorbed into the mainstream to some extent. The extremes aren't quite as extreme as they were, but they've been a force for good. Definitely a force for good. What do you think about biodynamic farming practices? Because I tend, when I uh, spend time with you, which I always very much enjoy, um, I tend to think of you as, as, um, a, a, as a sort of upholding tradition and standards and are not really taking much nonsense uh, to, to, to sort of uh, to, to find a euphemistic way of, of putting it. And I just wonder, when you look at the methods used in biodynamic, what do you think of that type of farming and the results? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you read the theory, if you read the books of theory, they are completely and utterly bonkers. The idea that by filling a cow's horn with 
manure and burying it over the winter, you are connecting with the eternal feminine, is, to my mind, a load of old tosh. But by filling a cow's horn with manure and burying it over the winter and then adding that to water, you are getting something that is full of bacteria, which is going to be very good for the soil. And that's not tosh. There is an awful lot of good stuff in biodynamics. And there's an awful lot of mystic superstition. And the the difficulty and what we're seeing now is people succeeding in separating the two and picking out the bits that really do do good. Because there's such a focus on soil health now. And chemical farming has destroyed soil health. That's the same in wine. It's the same in wheat farming. It's the same in everything. It has destroyed soil health. And if you want to put it back, then you have to use biodynamic methods will do it you know there are ways of doing it but this will help and you do see results in the glass this is Mm. the extraordinary thing organic farming doesn't seem to make much difference to the flavor but biodynamism does it restores acidity one of the first things that remember dominique lafont in burgundy he was one of the first there to go biodynamic And he said within three years, the acidity returned to his wine. And that's a result. That really is a result. So it works. Which bits of it work is the other question, because some of it is just decoration and invented superstition. But some of it rarely works. I've heard people who are not farming biodynamically say before that if anyone was to spend that much time and attention because that's required for biodynamic farming. It's very uh, intensive in terms of time and, and effort. If anyone was spending that much time making a, a wine, then they'd make a good wine. You know, it's, it's kind of nothing to do with biodynamic. It must just be that they are very, very good at what they do. Do you have any, any truck with that view? Well, it may be true. You know, I, I just don't know. There's no proof either way. But it's true that if you're paying detailed attention to every single vine, then you're probably going to look after them better. If you can have healthy soils, with, with the, we're learning so much more now about soil health. There's a wonderful book called um, Entangled Life, which is all about microfungi in the soil and how different species, different plants are connected by all these undersoil networks of, of microfungi. Um, it is fascinating. And you think, really, we should not be ploughing, we should not be digging, we should just leave the soil to its own devices, and it will manage itself. Of course, a vineyard is, is an artificial construct, so that doesn't totally work. But soil health is crucial. And if you do pay attention to every vine, maybe that makes as much difference. I just don't know. Yeah, well, I think we we don't know, do we? And that's uh, that that's the reality. But there's what we uh, find in the glass uh, can can at least draw us to uh, to certain conclusions, and, and and that's absolutely you know w- what you're saying. You highlight specific areas um, in, in the book uh, as the new fine wines, and uh, you even apologise for the number of um, of capital letters you're using there, which amused me no end. Uh, tell us a bit about what you're trying to achieve there. Everybody has an idea of what fine wines are, and it usually starts with Bur- with Bordeaux and ends with Burgundy. And there's Port and there's Champagne and not many others, really. German Riesling would probably count, yes, in, in that traditional fine wine bracket. The world is much bigger now. There is also 
a colossal difference now in price between the super expensive traditional fine wines and the cheapest industrial wines. And yet in between, there is this whole bracket, if bracket is not too formal a term, of new of new wave wines, terrible cliche, from all over the world, made with often with, with natural methods, certainly with indigenous yeasts, using different methods, concrete tanks, all sorts of things like that, but made with great, great attention to expressing the terroir, to not producing perfection, you might almost say. There's a, a drive, a fashion for traditional fine wines to be perfect. And everything, you know, if you think of top Bordeaux now, Everything's perfect. Everything's it's marvellous. It's wonderful winemaking. It's superb. It's incredibly intelligent. And they invest huge amounts in this. But it is perfection. It is polished perfection. And the new fine wines, I feel, to say they're imperfect, is, <laughs> that sounds a terrible slur, but they're trying to, they're looking for individuality, not perfection as the, the main aim. And they come from all over the world. Europe, lesser, part, lesser known parts of Europe, Parts of the new world, you know, anywhere. Perfection is uh, interesting, isn't it? Because, um, as you say, it's, it's very, very clever, very sophisticated. But a lot of very perfect wines can be oddly uh, very similar, can't they? There is almost a, um, a homogeneity that comes from perfection, if that doesn't sound too ridiculous. Yes, absolutely. And it always used to be thought that Bordeaux aims at perfection, Burgundy aims at individuality. Now, with a lot of with a lot of some big companies, multinationals moving into Burgundy, one wonders if that will still be the aim, or if Burgundy will become more focused on perfection. Perfection is, you know, it's admirable, it's it's wonderful, but as you say, it can be a little samey. It's like perfect faces, I suppose. You know, if you have a lot of fillers and Botox, and I don't know what. You do tend to end up looking like other people who've had a lot of fillers and Botox. Yeah. Not having had either, of course, I can say no, that. No, good, good <laughs> point. Um, and what uh, excites you in terms of these regions? So the new fine wines, um, where would you go now for uh, value, for excitement? Because, and it's interesting, value, I was so pleased to see that somewhere in the, in the guide, uh, you, you make that point that value does not mean cheap. It means what you're getting for your money. And that drives me mad because the two things get, get muddled up so often, don't they? Oh, value, yes, it becomes a euphemism for cheap. And it's not. Mm. You don't get proper value unless you spend a certain amount. Otherwise, it is just cheap industrial wine, which is fine. You know, it's what a lot of people drink most of the time. I drink it myself, and it's fine. But interest, is, which is where value lies, you have to spend a bit more. And then you're getting real personality, real a real feel of a place and excitement. Mm. And where do you go for that, uh, if you think of some of the highlights from, uh, from the guide? I would look, where would I look? Italy, a lot of Italy, Croatia, Slovenia, really, really interesting wines. Austria, oh, Austrian whites. Fabulous and Blau Frankish, glorious. In Spain, I have a fixation about Grados, which is 
a mountainous region, sort of nearish to Madrid, very remote, made a lot of um, mass market wine some decades ago, and then the bottom fell out of that. And it's been rediscovered by quirky, eccentric winemakers looking for 100-year-old vines and bringing back these abandoned vineyards and making this wonderful garnacha, which is not the sort of stand-a-spoon-up type garnacha that we used to be, used to see everywhere. It's light and it smells of roses and lavender and it's just heavenly. There's a box for the Etna wines as well. And I'm at some, I'm, I'm borderline obsessed with the, the wines from uh, Etna. Uh, there's presumably another region that you've seen um, up and coming while you've been editing the guide. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm going there next week, which is rather exciting. Oh, lucky you. Um, it's volcanic soil, isn't it? It seems to have this extraordinary effect on wines. They have a sort of sparkiness, which I know is auto-suggestion. I know it is. But it just feels like that. It's, it's a sort of energy about them. And because they're high altitude, they're, they've got acidity. And this wonderful energy and liveliness. Yeah. And uh, there's something about them that makes you want to run as well. It's almost as if the lava's on its way. I, again, that's all to suggestion, <laughs> but it, uh, it always has that, that, has that thrilling effect that, and that nerviness uh, that, that uh, manifests itself uh, that way uh, with me. They sing and dance. They do. They really do. You dedicate uh, quite a bit of space, uh, relatively speaking, uh, in, in what is uh, a very, very condensed book, um, at the back to exploring the issue of ageing. Um, why did you choose that theme? We have a supplement in the book every year, and it's different every year. And I try and choose a subject that cuts across the rest of the book. So the rest of the book is country by country. So this is something that cuts across all countries and refers to more general issues. But it's important now because wines can be drunk so much earlier than they could before. You know, we used to be told that you had to age certain wines for 10 years or this wine for five years or this wine for 20 years. And now you, you don't. You really don't. Most wines are drinkable so much earlier than they used to be able to, to be drunk. Will they last as long? don't know. It depends who you listen to. We don't know. We'll have to wait 20, 30 years and find out. But people don't understand about ageing, I don't think, because it's a movable feast. You know, there's an assumption that older is always better, and uh, not so. Mm. There's a wonderful allure to, to young wines. It's fair to say that in the British market, uh, we have always had more of an obsession with ageing wines, haven't we? The British taste has been traditionally for older wines. Because, yes, Bordeaux in particular, we used to age a long time. And the French would drink incredibly young. You know, you go to a restaurant in Paris and you get offered two-year-old claret. And America was somewhere in the middle. But now, in order to age wines, you either have to buy them ready-aged on the secondary market, or you have to have a cellar, and most people don't have cellars. Or you rent space in a cellar if you're a big collector, which is a very good way of doing it. But, uh, yeah, we always had this reputation for liking very mature wines. I, I think that's probably changing now. Mm, I, I think it is. Uh, in this uh, uh, supplement at the back, uh, you actually cram in quite a lot of really valuable sort of uh, light-touch educational stuff, which is just great. Um, 
And uh, we've talked about acidity already. Um, tannins, uh, you say tannins are not just one thing. Um, just, just explain what you mean there. The clue is in the word, it's in the plural. So you get tannins are a class of substances which include colour and anthocyanins. You can get, you get tannins from stalks of grapes, from the seeds. There is this tannin in the skins. And then you can add tannin by aging the wine in oak barrels. To add tannin to tannin sounds a bit mad, but um, if you age a tannic wine in oak, then the molecules all join together and you get longer chain molecules, which feel softer in the mouth. So it's all about that softness in the mouth, softening the original tannins. And have you seen a change uh, as pronounced as you have with uh, with uh, acidity and, and, and freshness uh, with the management of tannins uh, in the time that you've been uh, writing about wine? Oh gosh, yes, yes. And it's gone. It's hang on. It's gone in a, in a learning curve, I suppose. Everybody started using new oak, and so everything tasted of new oak relentlessly. But new oak has this softening effect on tannins, particularly if the tannins are not completely, perfectly ripe. Now that we have climate change and riper grapes, the tannins tend to be riper um, and softer and sweeter on the palate. People are moving away now from a lot of extraction in reds. So we're getting these lighter, more drinkable wines. But yes, tannin management has become much, much more subtle, much more detailed. And it used to be that you needed ripe grapes and then you threw oak at them. And now the right, the degree of ripeness is much more finely calibrated. And oak is much more understood because oak itself is a fascinating subject. It's got a backstory as long as the backstory of a vine. Well, there's an area that you must have seen some quite dramatic change. The use of oak, what's deemed to be optimal. Now everybody wants invisible oak. So they're still using oak but they don't want oak that tastes of vanilla or coffee or coconut on the palate. And their invisible oak barrels, if you like, cost an absolute fortune. Coopers who, who make these with the greatest care, there's a cooper called Stockinger, Stockinger in Austria, who's incredibly careful. And if, you, if, he, if he agrees to make you a barrel, you will have the same cooper for every barrel you order thereafter. And it's oak that is of a very tight, fine grain. It's aged very carefully because where you age the staves makes a difference. Whether it's whether you age in the maritime climate or a continental climate, you get different flavour precursors in the wood. And then, of course, toasting the wood. And the reason for toasting a barrel in winemaking is obviously to, you, you need to toast the, 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 the staves with water and you know, with sprinkle of the, the, the wood with water and then put a fire inside in order to bend the wood because it's straight and it's wood, so it's hard. Um, if, but the toast tends to act as a barrier between the wood and the wine. So the more the toast, the less the flavour of oak. You need very, very good barrels to have less toast or sometimes now no toast. And that's where you need the barrels to be absolutely invisible and subtle. They still give structure. They give a bit of weight, a bit of bit of roundness, but they don't taste of oak. And it's it's remarkable. 
And isn't it odd when you've got used to wines that do that very successfully, when you taste something that very overtly tastes of wood? It, 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 it's a bit of a shock to the system, isn't it? Quite agree. I quite agree. You think, oh, oak, who could have mm, yeah. oh, What are they doing? It's putting oak on it. And yes, it's, it, tastes, it tastes obstructive, really. It sort of gets in mm. the way. The P word, Parker, uh, you mentioned uh, him earlier on. Um, there is a man who, who had a very uh, significant impact uh, on uh, wine uh, around the world, probably, but uh, most significantly um, in Bordeaux. Was that something that uh, you kind of um, felt kind of comfortable with? I, I, I struggle to think that that style is your style, really. Well, it's not my style. And yet, you know, he had some very good effects. He was a brilliant taster. He is a really, really brilliant and con- and consistent taster. He has a particular taste, which is for very rich, big, muscular reds. When he first died, he made his name originally with the 1982 v- vintage in Bordeaux, because the, it was a, the first of the modern vintages, if you like. It was a very ripe vintage. And the wines tasted very lush and very opulent early on. And the English trade was going around saying, oh, oh, oh won't, won't last, not too, too soft too early, won't last. And of course it did last. Parker said, it will last. They're very, very good. And he was right. He had a very good effect in encouraging people to greater ripeness at a time when that was not a given. He had a very good effect worldwide. But then it got extreme and the wines became, in my view, a lot of people would disagree with me, too muscular, too opulent, too samey. And you couldn't tell Syrah from Cabernet. Um, And then, of course, the pendulum swung back. No, not my style particularly, but I do acknowledge that he did a lot of good. Well, that's uh, very fair of you. Uh, You talk about concentration, too, in this uh, excellent supplement. um, And you make the point um, in the the subheading that uh, there's an ideal point of concentration for every wine. So uh, concentration changes effectively and moves, uh, the dial moves according to the wine. Yes. Yes, I think that's so. And the, the level of concentration you want in, for example, a non-vintage champagne is probably less than you want in one destined for 20 years ageing. So, yes, a wine that you're going to drink immediately. It needs enough concentration, but not too much. Which brings us neatly onto the word that I think, having spent time with you um, in in London at tastings, but also travelling with you, uh, it's a word that I think you probably use um, the most, I would say it's probably the word that's most important to you, and that is the B word, balance. Ah, yes. And what, what, a, what a subjective word it is, isn't it? Because mm. nobody ever says, I don't want balanced wines. I'm making my wines unbalanced. No, nobody has ever said that in the history of the world. Everybody says, my wines are balanced. I like balance. And you might think, but that's not my idea of balance. And I might think, not my idea of balance either. But they're not lying. That's what they like. That's what they think is balance. I think balance is about acidity and freshness, balancing weight and ripeness. But where that balance lies is absolutely in the palate of the beholder. So it's a subjective measure. But how do you 
guide people? If you're sitting tasting and there's someone who's not experienced in tasting wine, how would you guide them towards balance and and what to look out for? Well, that is a tricky one because the different wines do naturally have a different balance. Garnacha is balanced at a lower level of acidity than English sparkling wine. And so every kind of wine doesn't have the same ideal balance. And sometimes ripe fruit can be balanced by a bit of tannin, even in white wines, if the acidity is not there. I think I would say to a complete novice, think about what you're tasting, listen to it, taste the next wine and the wine after that, and describe them to yourself and let your tastes evolve. I can say, well, I think that wine's out of balance because the acidity is too high or the acidity is too low. They might like that. Beyond wine, uh, you also uh, do a bit of whiskey, don't you? Well, I used to. I don't really do any more now, but I did, I did ed- edit Whiskey magazine when it was launched, which was a, a lot of fun. I felt in the end I didn't have enough facial hair to do it long term. But um, it was fun. <laughs> and uh, where uh, are the parallels between wine and, and whiskies? Is there much, if you can do one, can you automatically do the other? I don't, I don't think anybody, I don't know. I don't think anybody ever has. The, tech, the, the science is different, of course. Fermentation plus distillation rather than just fermentation. The overlap, of course, is in the use of wine barrels for ageing whiskey which is a brilliant idea um, and has really helped to, to turn the, the premium whiskey category into something very, very interesting. Mm. Friends, my, my friend of mine make whiskey in Ireland. They decided to start making this. It's called the Liberator, if I can give it a quick plug. <laughs> yeah, I shall look it out. Uh, my whiskey knowledge is, uh, is, is not great. It was enough to get me through the, uh, the diploma, which was then wines and spirits. But, um, but I, um, I'm definitely not an expert. And it's always uh, scared me slightly. It feels like a whole new world that I don't feel I've got the time or the skills uh, to be able to throw myself into. I think I quite agree. And tasting whiskey is more complicated because you get all these flavours of distillation that you have to understand. Um, and, you know, if you think spotting faults in a wine is complicated, golly, spotting faults in a whiskey, that's where you will rarely get smacked down if you put a foot wrong. Did you enjoy being in that world when you were editing the magazine? It was fascinating. Yeah, I really did. It was absolutely fascinating. And I learned a huge amount. And I visited some wonderful distilleries, most of which were rather chilly. I remember going to see um, Talisker and wandering around after I'd done my visit. And I found a wonderful bay where the sea was coming in and thought, oh, wouldn't this be lovely in the summer? And realised it was August (laughs) because it was a bit chilly. (laughs) I bet. Um, Going back kind of to the beginning of uh, your career, because that's where ordinarily I would start the interview, but I wanted to get straight into the into the book and uh, and and Hugh. So um, how did you get into wine? Well, it was one of those chance things, you know, they don't tell you about it in careers offices. I went into book publishing, which was fine. What's what girls of my generation often did. And I got tired of it after a few years. And I thought, what else can I possibly do? I don't know. But wine might be quite fun. I didn't know anything about wine. And 
thought, what if I, I better learn something about it? So I stopped at Smith's at Waterloo Station on the way home and bought this book on wine, which happened to be, of course, the pocket wine book. And I thought, well, if I learn some of this, then that's going to be a good basis. So I did. And I talked to Serena Sutcliffe, who was writing a book for the publishers I was then working for, and I asked her advice. And she didn't know me at all, so it was incredibly kind of her. She said, go and talk to Decanter, because they need somebody to Decanter magazine. And I thought, well, I'll really learn this book, and I'll go along and talk to them. And I did. And they said, so how much do you know about wine? And I crossed my fingers tightly and said, oh, quite a lot, really. And then they asked me two questions, which proved I knew nothing at all. And I got the job because nobody else had applied for it, which was an extraordinary lucky break. And I started going to tastings and learnt that way. Not orthodox, but great fun. Well, uh, doing this, uh, we're on to, what, episode 82 now. I've lost count of the number of people who fell into wine by accident with a bit of serendipity, uh, yeah, some luck, a little bit of bluster, possibly. Um, it's um, a very wonderful world to be in, isn't it? Oh, I couldn't have asked for anything better. I mean, it's been huge fun. You meet people that you would never have met. You go to places you would never have gone to. And the people in wine are much nicer, I'm convinced, than the people in most fields. You know, if you're, I'm not, I have nothing against bankers or lawyers, but they are a different sort of person. And there's a humanity about winemakers because I suppose they're in touch with the, the earth and the seasons. And there's a, a deep humanity and humility about them. It's the most wonderful mm. thing to work in. No, it is. We're very fortunate. And if you're like me and you've come from a, a different uh, field of journalism, then it uh, it certainly feels uh, uh, very uh, warm and, and, and comfortable by uh, comparison, uh, for sure. We're very, uh, very, very lucky. Um, talking of lucky, you have done um, a lot of travel over the years. Um, what's the most kind of remarkable place you've been, the most remarkable thing you've seen, the, the most unforgettable thing you've seen while you've been uh, travelling for wine? Ah, well, the Douro Valley, I think, has to be my all-time favourite, and probably everybody else's all-time favourite too. And I started going there in the early 80s, before Portugal joined the EU, and it was really very poor. And one should not romanticise that poverty, of course, but it was like stepping back a century. You know, there were ox carts on the roads and dogs snoozing in the, the outside lane and things like that. It was so different from anywhere else and quite eccentric as well. I remember going to see one port company on a really, really hot summer's day. And we went through to a porter and we took the train up the, up the door. It was marvellous. It was extremely hot and we got there in time for dinner. It was still tremendously hot. And eventually we arrived for dinner and it was just baking hot. And their idea of a suitable dinner for a really, really hot summer's night was Christmas Christmas dinner. We had turkey, <laughs> roast potatoes, and Brussels sprouts. Where they got those from? Quite extraordinary. Yeah, and it can be sweltering, and they'll serve you a bowl of soup as well, because that's tradition, isn't it, in the Douro, to give you a, a bowl of soup. Cabbage soup. Yes. Not my favourite dish in the world, but um, yes, typical. Yeah, nor mine. But you're absolutely right. I was in the Duro just a month ago and there were a couple of people in the car who hadn't been there before. And they were asking sort of what it's like. And I said, it, it, a lot of places 
can be so hyped that you can actually be quite disappointed with the reality because you've heard so much about it. Um, the Douro is not such a place. It is absolutely spectacular. It does not disappoint, does it? It's the most beautiful place on earth. It really is. And now you can actually go there because, you know, there are hotels. Who'd have thought it? Hotels in the Douro. Yeah, tourism is uh, is kind of slowly catching up, but it's uh, yeah, fantastic uh, a place to be. Just finally, we always ask um, uh, our guests uh, for a desert island wine, and goodness me, the things you have tasted over the years. Uh, this must be a very difficult question. Uh, you know, Jancis has a, a sort of stock diplomatic answer because she gets asked so often, and I'm guessing you get asked uh, pretty often as well. But what would be your desert island wine? Well, it would either be a very wonderful red burgundy, and I can't think of an individual wine off the top of my head, or it would be a very wonderful champagne or English sparkling. And I might hear plump for our mutual friend Dermot Subaru and say I'd have one of his wines. That would be great. Because, you know, Desert Island, yeah, yeah, yeah. Want a lot of it, yeah. No, that would be fantastic on a desert island. I think, uh, yes, uh, the, the Trouble with Dreams. And it's a good title for a desert island wine as well, isn't it, really? The trouble with Dreams. Yeah. Good choice. All right, uh, Margaret, um, thank you so much. It's um, an excellent uh, reference book. It really is. Um, I, I was sort of lost in it over the weekend. Um, I hadn't read it for a few years. Um, and it's a, a fantastically accessible, approachable guide as well, which is just great. You don't need to know about wine, really, before you you pick it up. So a great stocking filler. Uh, well done for another edition. And thank you very much indeed for uh, taking the time to join us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much, David. Wonderful to talk to you. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. So we wrap up, as ever, with a selection of medal winners from the IWSC in 2022. And in Margaret's honour, we're going for gold this time uh, with some classics. Uh, We try to theme the wines each week, and I was uh, scratching my head trying to think of a theme and thought, actually, do you know what? Gold medal winners and classics, that will will work with Margaret. Uh, So here we go. Uh, A gold medal winner first from Burgundy, a place close to her heart uh, and mine. Um, Famille Carabello Baum, Corton Charman, Grand Cru 2019. Uh, This got uh, 96 points from the panel, which included... Uh, John Hoskins, MW, Alistair Cooper, MW, uh, Svetslav Manilev, Master Sommelier, and also Harry Crowther, a great mate of mine. No title there, but uh, he he warrants one. Uh, Here's what they had to say. A powerfully aromatic tartatin nose filled with buttery pastry and laced with richness. Hints of tropical pineapple swirled with a creamy mouthfeel and wonderful venosity, giving a seductive texture and endlessly long length. Wow. To another very traditional wine producing country uh, mentioned by Margaret earlier as uh, one of the classics. Uh, Germany, a gold medal winning uh, Riesling, uh, 95 points. Uh, This is Weingut Karl Schaefer, Dirkheimer, Michelsberg Riesling, Trocken, 2015. So dry, obviously, 
uh, from the Fouts. Uh, here's what the judging panel had to say. A highly concentrated nose gives aromas of flint, kerosene and tangy grapefruit. On the palate, this wine boasts more tropical notes of peaches and honeysuckle, plus a distinct creamy malic undertone. Offers a long, persistent finish. To another great wine-producing country, Italy next, and a gold medal winner from Tuscany, Tenuta Casinove, 2018. Uh, Chianti Classico, this. Uh, no wine in Italy has improved more over the last 20 years than Chianti Classico, says uh, the Pocket uh, Wine Guide. Uh, this 100% Sangiovese, uh, the panel said, complex, subtle and harmonious, Velvet smooth tannins, tangy acidity, precisely balanced, demonstratively dark fruits, woody and solid earthy underbelly of well-integrated tannins, nicely spiced and pleasing mineral freshness. It's off to Spain next. Uh, Bodegas Regina Viarum Menthea 2021 from Ribera Sacra. Uh, love the wines from uh, that particular region. Uh, this is a gold medal winner, 95 points, described by the panel, including Dercy Viana Jr., MW, Eric Zwiebel, MS, Kelly Stevenson, uh, guest on the one of the early editions of uh, The Drinking Hour, ex-buying manager at BA, and also Paula Brammer. Here's what they said. Vibrant, with good intensity, this example is bursting with bright notes of red plum, sour cherry and blueberries. Ribbons of earth, florals and sweet spice seamlessly weave throughout the palate. Great typicity with a long finish. And uh, just to demonstrate that you know, judging is blind, there's no snobbery because you uh, don't know the, the, the brand or whatever that you're judging. Here's a gold uh, medal winner that uh, went to a wine from Aldi, the uh, uh, discount uh, retailer from Germany. Uh, this is uh, Vieille Etoile 2017. Uh, it's a Chateauneuf-du-Pape, and it won 95 points. Um, it, I'm not sure what the price is here. Not sure if it's currently in stock, but it's uh, Aldi. So the range comes and goes a bit, but they're always excellent value. Uh, here's the tasting note. Displaying elegance in all areas. Traditional red fruit nose with a meaty mid-palate as expected. Concentrated, earthy yet fresh and balanced harmony. Lengthy and refined with a pleasingly dry finish, styled in traditional manner and styled well, uh, say the judging panel. Uh, so there we go. Well done, Aldi. That's it for another edition of the Drinking Hour. My thanks to the legend that is uh, Margaret Rand. Uh, hope you enjoyed uh, that uh, conversation. Um, and do look out for the Hugh Johnson Pocket Wine Book. It's great, as I, I said. Um, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, but until the next time, for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.